Well, in his book titled Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis called it the great sin. And what sin was he referring to? Well, in his book, he answers that question when he writes, There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except for some Christians ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. There is no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves, and the more we have it in ourselves, the more that we dislike it in others. This vice that I'm speaking of, writes Lewis, is the sin of pride. Beloved, pride is a a terrible and a destructive sin, is it not? It can tear apart relationships. Pride can divide close uh, friendships. It can ruin one's reputation. And most significantly, it can hinder us from honoring the Lord in the way we should with our lives. We know from Scripture that pride, listen, is basic to all other sins. It was this sin that began all others when Satan said, I will be like the Most High God. In addition, Proverbs 6 tells us that pride is number one on God's hate list. In fact, Proverbs 6.16 states this, These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. And guess which one tops the list? You guessed it, pride. You see, there are some things that God loves, but there are also some things that God absolutely hates, and pride is one of them. And the question that services is, what is pride? What is pride all about? Well, as someone once put it, pride is nothing more than an exaggerated and a dishonest evaluation of self. Pride says, I want people to notice me and to admire me and to praise me. Pride says, I want people to envy me and to flatter me and to idolize me. As one author noted, pride says, I want people to ascribe to me a value and an importance, an honor, a reputation, and a significance I do not deserve. And so that's what the nature of what pride is. The sin of pride places self above God and says, I'm number one. And so that's what pride is. And if you're familiar with scripture, then you know, listen, that the Bible is not silent about this sin. God's word has a lot to say about it. And I already mentioned Proverbs 6.16 just a moment ago. And here are some other statements the book of Proverbs alone has to say about this issue. Proverbs 8.13 states, The fear of the Lord is to hate, fee, uh, hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way, and the perverse mouth I hate. Proverbs 11.2 says, When pride comes, then comes shame, but with the humble there is wisdom. Proverbs 16.18 says something similar when it says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And then last but not least, Proverbs 29.23 states, A man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. And so that's God's opinion of pride. And I suppose that if you wanted to sort of summarize all the Old Testament Proverbs on this particular subject, we could easily do it with one key statement from the book of James, which states, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. In other words, when a person lifts himself up in pride, he puts himself in a position against God. When you are proud, God fights against you. And yet when you're humble, God gives you grace. So you see, the Bible has a lot to say about the issue of pride, doesn't it? A lot. And I'm convinced there's not a more graphic illustration of this particular sin and transformation from this sin 
than the story of King Nebuchadnezzar found over in Daniel chapter 4. So if you have a copy of God's Word with you tonight, I encourage you to take it out and to open it and meet me at the fourth chapter of the book of Daniel. Over to Daniel chapter 4, and just as a side note, the high school students, uh, as many of you know, I serve as a youth pastor here at Grace, and the high school students, we've been working our way through Daniel, and this just happens to be where we're we're at. And uh, it's been a very uh, encouraging study for my own heart, for my own soul, and I hope it'll be uh, an encouragement to you tonight. Now, before we jump into our text tonight, I think it's worth noting a couple of unique features of this particular chapter. First of all, this fourth chapter of Daniel records what I believe is the climax of the spiritual biography of King Nebuchadnezzar. And you say, well, who's King Nebuchadnezzar? Well, we're told in the book of Daniel that he was the powerful Babylonian king whom God allowed to destroy the nation of Judah. And those of you familiar with the Old Testament, you're familiar with that story that Judah was in a disobedient state for years. And though the Lord, through the prophets, warned Judah time and time again, she continued to go her own way. And so as time unfolded, God eventually lowered the hammer and judged the southern kingdom of Judah through the nation of Babylon. And at that time, listen, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. Or as my daughter Macy says it, he was the king of the Babylonians. okay? Instead of the Babylonians, he was the king of the Babylonians. And so that's the background of King Nebuchadnezzar. And if you're familiar with the book of Daniel, then you know that this king, listen, had a front row seat in all the major events in chapters 1 through 3. For example, he witnessed the character and integrity of Daniel as recorded in Daniel chapter 1. And, and many of you know the story. Daniel and his friends were brought over from, from Judah, from Jerusalem, over to the province or the empire of Babylon, in the face of compromise, it says Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile himself. And so he witnessed that in chapter 1. In addition to that, he witnessed the miraculous explanation and interpretation of his dream as recorded in chapter 2. And in that chapter, of course, the king was uh, given a dream. Nobody can interpret it. So Daniel came in, and when Daniel relayed the dream to him, he realized that he was given the most comprehensive panoramic picture of human history, history ever given to anyone. And in addition to that, we also know thirdly, he witnessed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's unbelievable courage and unwavering conviction before God back in Daniel chapter 3. And so that's all of what Nebuchadnezzar has been exposed to uh, in relation to Yahweh, the God of Israel, the true God, up until chapter 4. And so now coming, listen, to the fourth chapter, we arrive at the climax and the pinnacle of Nebuchadnezzar's story and what I believe to be his conversion by faith in the one true God. And let me just say up front, it's an incredible, an incredible story. And then a second feature that is unique, excuse me, about this chapter is that it was written by King Nebuchadnezzar himself. Listen, all of the chapters of this book were written by Daniel, except for this one. This was his own personal account of the Lord's work in his life. And notice what he writes in verse one. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. And so this is a royal proclamation to all the people in his kingdom. And what did Nebuchadnezzar have to say? Look at verse 2. He says, I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. How great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion is from generation to generation to generation. Wow. I mean, these are amazing words coming from the mouth of King Nebuchadnezzar. 
I mean, after all, this is the same king who back in chapter 1 sought to humiliate the God of Israel by taking the temple vessels from Jerusalem and putting them into the house of his own gods. This is the same king who back in chapter 2 threatened to kill his own men due to their inability to to interpret his dream. And the same king who back in chapter 3 threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace for not bowing to his image and for not worshiping him as king. I mean, prior to this chapter, listen, King Nebuchadnezzar is a fierce and ruthless king. And so the question that comes to mind is, well, what happened, right? What was the, what was the turning point in his life? I mean, how did King Nebuchadnezzar go from building a 90-foot image of himself in chapter 3 to bowing the knee to the one and only true God? Well, in the next set of verses, the king is going to take us back to the event that changed his life. Look at verse 4. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house, and I was flourishing in my palace. Let's stop here. The circumstances surrounding the king's life back at this point in time were very peaceful. It took place during a time where the king was at rest. He was free from fear, free from any apprehension, and at a point where his kingdom was flourishing and prospering in a very significant way. In fact, you could put it this way. At this point in time in the king's life, nothing could be better. Everything was going great. Everything was smooth sailing until a certain something happened that would change everything. And we're told about that certain something in verse 5 where Nebuchadnezzar writes, in verse 5, I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts on my bed and the visions on my head troubled me. The word afraid at the beginning of the verse combined with the word troubled at the end of the verse gives us some insight into the impact this dream had in the king's life. You could put it this way. The king was bothered, really bothered. And so in verse 6, he writes, Therefore I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. And the magicians and the astrologers and the Chaldeans and the soothsayers came in and I told them the dream, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. Big surprise, right? I mean, this group of guys had a zero batting average, okay? This was the the same group of guys that the king called back in chapter 2 to help him interpret his dream. And guess what? They couldn't get it done then, and they couldn't get it done now. But in God's sovereignty, listen, this set the stage perfectly for Daniel to enter the scene. And notice what it says in verse 8. It says, but at last... Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. In him is the spirit of the holy God. And I told the dream before him, saying, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you and no secret troubles you, explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. And so the king started with his own wise men, and then he eventually turned to whom? Daniel. That's right. He turned to Daniel. In the next verse, he tells Daniel the dream. Look at verse 10. He says, these were the visions of my head while, uh, on my head while on my bed. He says, I was looking and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth. And its height was great and the tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens and it could be seen to the ends of all the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and in it, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches and all flesh was fed from it. Let's, let's stop here for a moment. So the first thing the king tells Daniel about the, tree, about the dream is that there was a tree. 
And listen, this wasn't just any tree, right? This was a, a massive tree. This was a tree that was exceedingly tall. I mean, imagine if, if all of a sudden this tree grew out of Bozeman and, and it rose up into the sky and went beyond the clouds and, and it was a tree that's, that just fully flourished and it was so big that you could see it from any part or angle or direction from the state. I mean, it, would, it was just huge. It was a massive tree, the side of which extended to the ends of all the earth. And in verse 13, it says, I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. And he cried aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches and strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts get out from under it and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts on the grass of the earth. Did you notice the change in pronouns there? In verses 10 through 14, the tree was referred to as an it, but here in verse 15, it's referred to as a he or a him. And that's a significant change we'll see in just a moment. In verse 16, it goes on and says, Let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast and let seven times pass over him. And this decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he wills and sets over it the lowest of men. You know, that last statement in verse 17 is really, it's extremely significant because, because it tells us the purpose of what's about to unfold. The purpose, listen, was so that all the living would know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he wills, and sets over it the lowest of men. In other words, God wanted everyone to know that he was the sovereign God of the universe and that all earthly rulers are subject to him. And I think what this verse shows us is that though Nebuchadnezzar, listen, though he was a powerful king, he was simply a tool in God's hand to accomplish his own purposes. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar, listen, he was a great king, but he was no match for the king of kings. And so in verse 18, it says, This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, declare its interpretation, since all the wise men of my kingdom are, are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able for the spirit of the holy God is in you. You know, I think it's worth noting here that this is the third time the king refers to Daniel as one who possessed the spirit of the holy God. Back in verse 8, he said, But at last Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar. According to the name of my God, in him is the spirit of the holy God. And then look at verse 9. He's, uh, he says, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you. You see, you see, three times, three times the king referred to Daniel this way. You say, well, what's the significance? Well, the significance is this. Listen, due to the character Daniel possessed and due to the choices he made, it was obvious to Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel knew God. Listen, King Nebuchadnezzar saw a clear difference in Daniel's life. And I guess the question that comes to mind is, do others see the same in you? Do other people see the same in your life? Beloved, is your love for Christ so real and your commitment to him so deep that others can't help but see Christ in you? You know, just on a personal note, one of the reasons I think we've lost our influence as Christians is because we look like the world all the time. I mean, we're in the world and we look just like it. I mean, our standards are the same. Our convictions are the same. Our reactions are the same. Our speech is the same. We're in the world and we look just like 
the world. No wonder we're not making the difference that we should. But you know what? Daniel was different. Daniel was a man of integrity who lived a consistent, God-honoring life. And the king noticed a difference. And so what was Daniel's response to the dream? Well, look at verse 19. It says, Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time, and his thoughts troubled him. And so the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. And Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream concern those who hate you and its interpretation concern your enemies. And so the question is, why was Daniel so concerned about the dream? Why was he so troubled? Well, as we see from the verse, Daniel wasn't troubled because he didn't understand the dream. Listen, the reason he was troubled is because he did understand it and what the implications were for the king. Daniel was saying, in effect, O king, I wish the dream was true of your enemies and not of you. And you know what this response shows us? It shows us, listen, that Daniel had a heart of compassion for the king. Listen, Daniel's silence wasn't a silence of confusion. It wasn't a silence of perplexity. No, it was a silence of love and compassion. Daniel loved King Nebuchadnezzar. And through this interaction, I think there's a great principle for all of us to learn, and it's this. Listen, even though our message as Christians is a message of judgment because the Bible says he who does not believe is condemned, we should never share that message without a heart of love and without a heart of compassion. I mean, after all, Romans chapter 2 tells us that that's what led to our conversion, right? Romans 2.14 states it's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. It was because of God's kindness, because of his compassion, that any of us repented and turned to him. And guess what? God wants our lives to have the same effect in drawing other people to him. And that's what we see here in the life of Daniel. And so Daniel cared. But as we'll see in a moment here, he still gave the interpretation and told the king what he needed to hear. In verse 20, he goes on to say, The tree that you saw, O king, which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens, and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely, and its fruit abundant, and which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelled, and whose branches the birds of the heaven had their home. Look what he says in verse 22. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong for your greatness, has grown and reaches to the heavens, and your dominion to the end of the earth. And so with a heavy heart, Daniel declared to the king that the tree and the dream represented one person and one person alone, and it was the king himself. The tree represented none other than King Nebuchadnezzar. And this was actually a fitting representation of the king, the image of the tree, for at least three reasons. First, we know from passages like Ezekiel 31 and other passages from the Old Testament that trees frequently used, uh, were frequently used in ancient times to symbolize the great rulers of the day. And of course, knowing King Nebuchadnezzar and his background, he certainly fit the bill on that, uh, in that uh, particular uh, instance or that issue. Second, we know in several of his inscriptions that Nebuchadnezzar boasted about the peaceful shelter and the abundance of food he provided for all of Babylon. In fact, in one inscription, he said this, quote, the produce of the lands, the product of the mountains, the bountiful wealth of the sea within her, I received. Under her everlasting shadow, I gathered all men in peace, vast heaps of grain beyond measure, I stored up within her. So even the king himself saw himself as a tree of provision for all the people in his empire. And then a third reason the tree image was a fitting representation of the king was due to the king's love for the forests of Lebanon. 
We know from history that several of Nebuchadnezzar's military campaigns took him through that particular region. And during those campaigns, the king became greatly captivated by the massive cedar trees that filled that part of the land. And so all in, in fact, in one inscription, let me say this, in one inscription, Nebuchadnezzar boasted that he personally had cut down some of the large cedar trees with his own two hands. And so all in all, this image of the tree was a very appropriate, a very fitting description of the king. And notice what he says in verse 23. Daniel continues to relay the dream. And he says, And as much as the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven. Let him graze uh, with the beasts of the field till seven times passes over him. This is the interpretation. O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. And they shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. And so God's message to Nebuchadnezzar was that he was going to be humbled for a period of seven times, a length in which many commentators believe is a reference to seven years. And during that period of seven years, the king would become insane and be made to act like a wild animal. And verse 26 says, And as much as they gave the command to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven or the God of heaven rules. And the reference to leaving the stump here refers to the fact that though the king would be cut down, though he would be humbled for a season, he wasn't going to die. He wasn't going to be completely removed from the scene. The king would only be humbled long enough to learn who was the true king of kings and the true Lord of lords. And then notice what Daniel says next in verse 27. He says, Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. And so here we see Daniel appealing to the king. He's, he's urging him to repent. He says to the king, O king, while there is still time, you need to humble yourself. You need to repent. Otherwise, the consequences are going to be what? devastating. And so here's the question. How did the king respond, right? I mean, what was his response in Daniel's, uh, to Daniel's exhortation to turn from his pride and to turn to the Lord? Well, we read in verse 28, it says, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. And at the end of the 12 months, let's stop here for a moment. How long was the king given to humble himself before the Lord? He was given a whole 12 months. Talk about the patience of God, right? I mean, God didn't give the king just an hour or just a day or just a month to respond. In his mercy, he gave him an entire year. As I looked at this, I thought back to our message this morning in Exodus 34 regarding God's character. When the Lord said as he passed by the Lord, the Lord God, he is merciful and he is what? Gracious. And we see an example of that right here in this very text. And so in verse 28, it says, All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, and at the end of the 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. And the king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Uh-oh. There's a problem. After a whole year has passed, the king is still what? He's still proud, isn't he? It says in the text that he was walking around one day in his palace and from a lookout point in which he could see all the city of Babylon, uh, Babylon, he boasted by saying, look 
what I have accomplished. Look at all that I have done. Aren't I a great king? You know, from a purely human perspective, Nebuchadnezzar had good reasons to boast. You say, why is that? Well, we know from history that he was probably one of the greatest builders in ancient times. During his reign, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, we know, built and restored several palaces all throughout Babylon. In addition, he also built two massive walls that surrounded the city of Babylon, one of which was wide enough for chariots to pass each other on its top. One of Nebuchadnezzar's most incredible projects was the magnificent, uh, magnificent Ishtar Gate. And this was a, a double gateway through the walls of the city with brightly colored tiles. In fact, some of these tiles uh, have been uncovered, and you can actually go and see them uh, at a museum at the uh, University of Chicago. But by far, listen, the greatest, the king's greatest feat in ancient times was the hanging gardens. Apparently, one of, the king, uh, one of King Nebuchadnezzar's wives grew homesick for the mountains of her homeland. So what did the king do? Well, in order to satisfy her, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, had tremendous amounts of earth transferred to the royal palace to put together a few artificial mountains. Now listen, I know of some men who have done crazier things to please their wives, but this was quite the accomplishment. Unbelievable. And on these mountains were planted various trees and plants, and an ingenious hydraulic machine system was devised to lift water from the Euphrates River to the elevated gardens. And so this site, the site of this must have been incredible. I mean, these hanging gardens became so famous that the Greeks named them one of the seven wonders of the world. I mean, people would travel all over from the world to go see this. And so Nebuchadnezzar was an incredible builder, but that was no excuse for his self-sufficient and self-centered pride. And did you notice, beloved, did you notice how obvious the king's pride was? I mean, Nebuchadnezzar didn't blush when speaking about his greatness. There was no sense of his trying to hide it. And maybe you know people like this in your life who are like that, that those who are proud and arrogant, and they're, they're just not ashamed of it. But you know, let me, let me say this. In case you think you're insulated from this sin because you would never say something like that, you need to understand that pride can also be very subtle. And as I think about that reality, I think back to a quote from John Piper when he said this about pride. Listen to what he had to say. He said, the essence of pride is the enjoyment of self-sufficiency rather than God's uh, sufficiency. And the enjoyment of self-exaltation rather than God-exaltation. He went on to say, now don't make the mistake of saying to yourself right now, well, pride is surely not my problem because I'm a loser. I don't feel self-sufficient at all. And I don't expect anybody to exalt me because I'm so ugly or unintelligent or weak. So pride is not my problem. He says, be very careful here and don't let Satan trick you. I did not say that pride was the achievement of self-sufficiency or the achievement of self-exaltation. I said that pride is the enjoyment of them and the delight in them and the desire for them. He says, you must, he says you may see your life as a total failure and walk through life feeling crushed and still have pride as the driving force in your life. He said the very pain you feel at being a failure may be, due, uh, may be owing to the desperateness of your desire to look su- successful and to taste the glory of human praise. And then Piper went on to give an illustration. He said, one person may go to a party and brag and draw attention to himself and his achievements, while another may go to the same party and be so fearful and insecure that he hides in corners to avoid others. And both of these persons may be driven by the sin of pride. The strong person doesn't believe the grace of God is needed. The weak person doesn't believe the grace of God is sufficient. And since God is not their portion, but man is, one person fearful that he won't get it hides, while the other person hopeful that he will get it brags, to which Piper said, same disease, different symptoms, and all of us have it. 
So you see, beloved, pride can be very outward, but it also can be very subtle, can it? Uh, don't you see that in your own life? The fact is, either way, God's, whether it's outward or inward, outward or subtle, the fact is, either way, God's estimation of it is the same. He is very displeased by it. And notice, if you will, what happened to the king as a result of his unashamed pride. Look at verse 31. It said, while the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven and said, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. Imagine that. I mean, in the moment that, that the, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar is looking over at his, at the, at his empire, his, the city of Babylon, in the moment of his pride and, and he's boasting, he hears this message from the Lord saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. And that very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. This condition that Nebuchadnezzar was stricken with is called lycanthropy. And what is lycanthropy? Well, it's a form of insanity where a person thinks he's an animal and acts just like one. However, while experiencing this form of insanity, the person still retains an inner consciousness, and that would explain the king's ability to change his attitude while suffering from such madness. Now, in case you think this was something that only happened back in Daniel's day, it's worth noting that such a sickness has been documented in recent times. In fact, a British scholar by the name of Raymond Harrison recites a personal experience with a modern case similar to that of Nebuchadnezzar, which he observed in a mental hospital in 1946. And this is what he had to say, quote, He said, A great many doctors spend an entire busy professional career without once encountering an instance of the kind of monomania described in the book of Daniel. He said, the present writer, therefore, considers himself particularly fortunate to have actually observed a clinical case of lycanthropy in a British mental institution in 1946. He writes, the patient was in his early 20s, who reportedly had been hospitalized for about five years. His symptoms were well developed on admission, and diagnosis was immediate and conclusive. He was of average height and weight, with good physique, and was in excellent body condition. His mental symptoms include pronounced antisocial tendencies, and because of this, he spent the entire day from dawn to dusk outdoors in the grounds of the institution. His daily routine consisted of wandering around the magnificent lawns, and it was his custom to pluck up and eat handfuls of grass as he went along. On observation, he he was seen to discriminate carefully between grass and weeds, and on inquiry from the attendant, the writer was told the diet of this patient consisted exclusively of grass from hospital lawns. He never ate institutional food with other inmates, and his only drink was water. The writer was able to examine him carefully, and the only physical abnormality noted consisted of a lengthening of the hair and a coarse, thickened condition of the fingernails. Without institutional care, the patient would have manifested precisely the same conditions of those mentioned in Daniel 4.33. I mean, that's unbelievable, isn't it? And so you see, this is what the king of Babylon was reduced to. The most powerful king on the earth was made to act just like an animal. You say, well, why did it happen? Two reasons. First, because God wanted to make it clear that though King Nebuchadnezzar was a powerful king, he was no match for the king of kings. 
And second, the reason this happened is because God knew, listen, that is what it would take to reach the heart of this pagan man. And notice the change, if you will, in verse 34. It says, and at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. We know from ancient sources that the Babylonians worshiped false gods who came from the earth. But here it says, instead of turning to the earth, the king's eyes turned where? Up toward heaven, toward the true God of heaven. You see, Nebuchadnezzar has finally come around, hasn't he? In verse 34, it says, At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, his, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? Wow. I mean, what an amazing change, right? Nebuchadnezzar started out as a prideful, raging, arrogant king, and now his life has been changed as a result of the matchless grace of God. In verse 36, he says, And at the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me, and I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. What an incredible testimony, right? And it's because of these statements, beloved, that I really believe that we will see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven one day. I mean, can you think of any unsaved person who would ever make such a claim as this? Me neither. I really believe we will see him in eternity. But in the meantime, what can we take from this text? What are some principles that we can take away from our study here in Daniel chapter 4? Well, I believe there are at least two. Are you ready for them? The first is this. Number one, ask God to help you walk through life with humility. Ask God to help you walk through life with humility. Beloved, humility isn't natural for any one of us, is it? Isn't it? I mean, we naturally, as people, are drawn to self-promotion. As people, we're, we're naturally dra- uh, drawn to asserting our own will instead of being willing to yield to others. We're naturally drawn to taking the credit for things that we have no business taking credit for, being defensive when other, po- uh, other people point out wrongs in our lives. And for that reason, can I just encourage you tonight to ask God to produce what only He can produce in your life. John Stott said it well when he wrote this. He said, in every step of our Christian growth and maturity and throughout every aspect of our Christian obedience and service, our greatest foe is pride and our greatest ally is humility. Beloved, as you walk through life, learn to resist pride and make humility your, bre- your best friend. And then a second application of this is this. Are you ready for it? Don't underestimate the impact of a consistent godly life. Don't ever underestimate the impact of a godly, consistent life. Three times in this chapter, the king said what to Daniel? I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you. And the question that comes to mind again is, how did he know that about Daniel? I'll tell you how. By the way that Daniel lived his life. You see, a man's life reflects what he worships. And a man's life reflects what he believes his God is like. And so here's the question I have for you. Hey, what picture is your life portraying to the world? What picture is your life portraying to an unsaved world? Well, when Henry Stanley found David Livingston in the heart of Africa, 
he stayed with him for six months. Stanley was an outspoken skeptic when he found Livingston, but he came away a Christian. And when asked what Livingston said that led to his conversion, Stanley simply replied, it was not what Livingston said. It was what Livingston was that brought me to Christ. According to Stanley's report, Livingston never asked Stanley if he was a Christian, and he never preached to him or, nor seemed to pray for his conversion. But by the sheer influence and virtue of Livingston's life, Henry Stanley walked out of the jungles of Africa, having surrendered his heart and his life to Jesus Christ. God, give us that kind of testimony. God, give us that kind of impact on an unsaved world. Let's close in prayer. And Father, I thank you for our time together in your word this evening. And Lord, I do thank you for teaching us what it means to live life with humility. And Father, tonight I would ask that you would help us to be that kind of people. As sinners, pride just, it, it seems to come so naturally for us. Whether it be obvious forms such as bragging about our gifts or being defensive about our sin or maybe even in, in subtle forms such as putting ourselves down to gain the attention of others or in other ways such as that. Pride seems to come so natural for us. And so our prayer tonight, Lord, is that you would help us to live humbly. Help us to see if there are areas of pride in our lives that we need to confess so that our lives might be pleasing to you. And Lord, help us to be like Daniel, to be a shining light in the midst of an unredeemed world. Help us to live life like he did, accurately portraying the God whom he served, and as a result, pointing others to the Savior Jesus Christ. Father, give us that kind of testimony in this community. We would pray this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who purchased us with his own precious blood. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.